the organizations and the teams inside of them are facing environments that are volatile. So things are changing all the time. Uh, they're, they're facing environments that are uncertain. Divorced our sense of time from human activity because we saw time simply as being measured by a clock and by nothing else. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Sadie Rodriguez, and I'm a cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and a member of the PCICS podcasting committee. I'm Lillian Sue. I'm also a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Stanford at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. Thanks to you, Lillian, for joining us. And thank you also to our guests, Dr. Donna Ballard and Dr. Mary Waller. Um, and if you ladies could introduce yourself, that would be great. Well, I'm Mary. Hi, everyone. I'm a senior research scholar in the Department of Management at Colorado State University. I'm also a, a emeritus professor uh, from York University in Toronto. And I'm Donna Ballard. I'm associate professor of organizational communication and technology at the Moody College of Communication at UT Austin. So we know both Mary and Donna because they were gracious enough to attend a session that Lindsay Justice and I had moderated at PCICS 2020. Uh, a session called The CICU Isn't Run by Robots, Understanding Our Humanness. So we wanted to just explore some of the concepts that they had brought up in the session a little bit more deeply and thoroughly. So thank you both for joining Sadie and I on exploring these really important topics. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's our pleasure. <laughs> I wanted to just sort of lay the groundwork a little bit um, because there were some new terms that I certainly wasn't familiar with and concepts um, just for our listeners who weren't able to attend or who who did but need a refresher. And so, um, Dr. Waller, you had introduced a term known as VUCA, V-U-C-A, as a way to describe an environment. Can you expand on what this means? Sure. It sounds sort of... Uh, <laughs> it sounds sort of... Um, Medical, doesn't it? VUCA. <laughs> Have you checked your VUCA lately? Um, <laughs> and it's it's actually something from the military uh, from from quite some time ago. But VUCA stands for, and it's V-U-C-A, and it stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And it's a way to um, quickly describe or categorize the environments that so many organizations are facing today, and not only organizations, but the teams inside organizations. The organizations and the teams inside of them are facing environments that are volatile, so things are changing all the time. Uh, they're, they're facing environments that are uncertain. You don't know what's going to be coming at you. Uh, they're facing environments full of uh, complexity. Not only do you not know what's going to happen, you, uh, you're, you're, you don't know what's going to be coming at you, but the things that are coming at you are very complex. Um, and the things that are coming at you are are ill-formed and ill-defined and ambiguous. So environments. 
VUCA. Pretty much sums up how it is to be in medicine and I think in the world in the these days of the pandemic, as well as a critical care unit. So it's a very pertinent topic. Before diving in a little bit more, I also wanted, um, Dr. Ballard, if you could also give us a sort of foundation, foundational understanding of your talk on time, which is totally mind-blowing. <laughs> I feel like I need to listen to it 10 times. If you could expand a little bit about what is sort of um, Kronos and Kairos and, and what that means and sort of how time has been constructed um, for societal measures. And then maybe after that, we can sort of combine your two expertise and, and figure out how we can continue to optimize functioning within all these constructs. Awesome. Well, yeah. So I study an area broadly called chronemics, which is the, like it's studying time as it's bound to human communication. So there's a lot of ways to study time, like neurological or psychological or, you know, sociological. This is really the ways that we are creating time together through our practices. And there's two, you know, there's a lot of ways to describe it, but in the, in the PCICS talk, I depicted the distinction between Kronos and Kairos. And so those are, you know, terms, um, ancient Greek terms and, the way that it applies now is that prior to the Industrial Revolution, we operated much more in a state of Kairos. Kronos has always had its place in, in terms of calendars, and there is Kronos is an inevitable part of life. But if we were to think about pre-industrial times and post-industrial times, which is where we are now, there's a lot more similarities, but there was this window of time in human history where, and you know, which was the industrial revolution where we divorced our sense of time from human activity because we saw time simply as being measured by a clock and by nothing else. And so there was this idea that sort of that was God's time was Kronos when historically like, Kairos means God's time. It's the idea that it's the, the time that we create and it's in the realm of sort of human activity. Whereas with Kronos, um, when you believe in the idea of time as a clock, then a lot of the assumptions, the things like clocks, we have these same assumptions about how human interaction works around time. So we have this idea that people work a lot like machines because right clocks are machines. And then we have the idea that we can control the people and events around us because that's what clocks help us to do. And then the idea that all times are the same because on a clock times have different numbers, but they look pretty much the same. There's no qualitative difference, but when you think about um, in like reality and you mentioned at the outset, you know, this pandemic time. It's a unique time in, in human history. And we got to see more of the Kairos of time where it's the event, not the clock. And who creates the events? Well, some events are completely created outside of our control, right? So the, you know, COVID-19, um, clearly a case of that, but there's so many other parts of time that we create. So our response to the pandemic was to shift from a clock time and to actually have the time of 
what do we need to do to be safe be the time. And so we canceled a bunch of things that would have been like heresy before. Like we canceled graduations and weddings. We didn't even hold funerals. Like that would be heretical, right? The idea that, well, there's these events and they've been planned and, you know, we canceled major conferences. Um, PCICS, right, was held. We were planning to be in Miami, I think it was. And here we were in our homes, you know, recording these and talking. So in Kairos, we get that people are nothing like machines, that life unfolds through the people and events around us. Our job isn't to get around the people and events to make our way to the real time. That is the time. The people and events are the time. That is the life that we're living. And also all times are not the same. I I give the example of like, yes, you know, on a clock times look the same, but if you're to get a call from your loved ones at 3 p.m., you know, versus 3 a.m., that's going to look and feel differently immediately. You know that all times aren't the same. So in a nutshell, those are two of the ways we can think of the multiplicity of times and start to start to question some of the ways that we operate and, and organize ourselves, um, our organizations, our groups around time. So Donna, I have to say that, and I think you know this, that your introduction of time being a human construct and something that um, the way we understand it now being born out of the industrial age and really meant so that people could give us the illusion that all time was the same by making it so that the clock that's ticking really dictates all of our coordination and all of our use of time. And I think that concept alone was so mind-blowing for me and something I really, really had to think about, especially in terms of in the care of our cardiac patients and how when I'm rounding in the cardiac unit, I do feel this sense of urgency of time. And sometimes I feel challenged to adhere to the time of the clock instead of adhering to the time that the patient or the family may need. And so, for instance, if a family or a patient needs more time to explain things on rounds, I used to get very time anxious about that. And obviously, there's some practicalities to the matter where the schedule of being in a unit and making sure the unit is functioning well and being coordinated by with all of these other teams requires that we all adhere to a clock time. Um, And certainly there are certain events like a cardiac arrest that literally will stop time where the rest of the unit um, gets less attention and we focus ourselves immediately on that patient who's in dire distress. But it's interesting to me that it takes such an extreme event for the patient to be the person to be dictating the time over the clock. And so one of the ways that I've started to really understand it is when you talk about event time versus clock time. And so if we talk about us for having lunch together in some societies or even maybe before the industrial age, it would just be the point of the day is for us for to have lunch together. And we're going to enjoy that And that time is not dictated as, oh, we've all scheduled it to be 
between 12 and one? And what is in fact more important when we are thinking about time and adhering to time? So I, um, I really think that's such an important concept for us to be thinking about as we talk about the routines that we have in the unit and to tie it specifically with the work that Mary does and her, and even operating in VUCA environments. It's as if, you know, people want us to be really high performing robots that adhere to a universal time clock and, um, and, can execute function, high functioning teams being in an environment that's completely predictable, that's robotic, that's industrial. We're factory workers working on a time grid and we can optimize our functioning. And so I think what Mary just said about VUCA environments is that's what's really challenging is when there is so much vol- volatility, uncertainty in these environments, that again makes us rethink how we can optimize our human performances because robots actually don't work that well in those kinds of environments. So Mary, maybe can you make a few comments about um, that? Most of, uh, of my research and, and what Donna and I have worked together too, and, and my colleagues' research has, has, uh, looked at exactly what you're talking about, Lillian. Um, how do teams, mostly uh, teams of of professionals, um, who are are mostly in these environments where they are charged with keeping things in order, uh, you know, keeping things under control, and they tend to be very complex environments. Um, a very technological environment. So we've studied uh, teams of uh, flight crews and nuclear power plant crews and uh, trauma teams, you know, with with you, Lillian, and um, uh, underground mine rescue teams and uh, teams dealing with um, uh, really complex crisis situations at busy seaports and, you know, all sorts of different types of teams. How do these teams, you know, deal with, with these, with these situations when they're charged with keeping things under control? Um, How do they adapt in these VUCA environments? Um, And they really have to, you know, let go of Kronos, (laughs) <laughs> because if they if they try to use Kronos to to keep things under control, they're sunk. They're sunk. They have to focus on the events and how the events are unfolding and adapt to the events because they don't know what's going to be around the corner. And and one thing that we see a lot is that a crisis begets another crisis in these types of situations. We call them cascading crises. crises. They you, you have one crisis and it spawns other crises. Um, and so they have to be situationally aware. They have to coordinate with each other, but they have to adapt and respond and 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 really be aware in the moment, you know, instead of trying to, to fit everything into, into a preordained or predetermined pattern that may work in a routine situation that's more determined by Kronos, more determined by, you know, what happens when everything's under control and everything is, is determined by clock time and everything's ticking away like a machine. 
they really need to let go of 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 that desire and that mindset in order to be successful in these in these situations where they have to react and have to anticipate and be highly adaptive. Uh, and that is how do you teach that? How do you train a team uh, and a, a, a lot of professionals who are trained and rewarded on being under control, right? And they're trained professionally to be to be under control and keep things under control in a very chronos way. You know, how do you train them? to be not like that in a crisis situation and be adaptive and spontaneous and creative in a very high stress VUCA environment? How do you train them to be exactly what they're trained not to be in 90% of the situations that they encounter? Uh, that's, that is really challenging. That is, that is, and that is, um, uh, it takes a special person to be able to, to leave everything behind and be, be a, a way in which they have not been trained to be in order to be successful in a VUCA environment, in a surprising VUCA environment that they've never encountered before. So, and, and amazingly, it can be trained and some teams and some organizations are amazingly successful in doing it. Yeah, Mary, I think you and I have discussed that idea that a lot of what we do is actually pattern formation, right? So, and Sadie, obviously, when we work in the ICU as attendings, and there's certain patterns to the day, there's certain patterns to how certain kids recover postoperatively and things like that. And the key is to capture kids when they're not progressing in the way that we expect and that that pattern has now been destroyed or either in a very, very subtle way or in a bigger way. But to catch that subtle deviation from exactly what we expected to happen and say, oh no, this kid is acting a little bit differently and my gut is kind of saying that something is wrong. We need to stop and regroup. And in a way, it's kind of like we need to stop time and debrief instead of being stuck in old patterns. So Mary, I think a lot about that phenomenon and that the threat um, rigidity, threat mm -hmm. rigidity, where when you are faced with something that is completely unknown to you or is not evolving in the way that you predicted, you actually revert back to some old patterns that you know because they're comfortable. But those old patterns may in fact be detrimental because what you should in fact be doing is figuring out a new way to respond. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Right. It's, it's, uh, it, it, there's, there, there are almost two things sometimes that are going on. Um, sometimes, um, sometimes it can be threat rigidity, like you, like you suggest. Um, um, we, and it happens on an individual level. It happens on a team level. It can even happen on an organizational level. But, but we feel threatened. Um, we feel fr frustrated. Um, and the the first thing we we tend to do is fall back to to those comfortable routines that have worked in the past. And we'll engage in those routines over and over and over, uh, even though the situation's not changing. Um, uh, the 
the example I, I use in class a lot to illustrate this is you're late for an important meeting and you run into the building, the, the meetings on the 30th floor and, and the, the elevator's not there. And so you hit the up button and you're waiting for the elevator, time's ticking away, you're, you're stressed, it, you feel like you have to do something and there's, there's no way you can use the stairs. You're, I, you, you, feel, you feel like you have to do something. So you keep hitting the up button over and over and over again, right? You know it's not going to do any good, but it's the only thing you have available. And, and so you keep hitting it. And, and when we've done um, simulations with nuclear power plant control room crews, um, for instance, we can, we can look at the printout from the uh, simulation computer and, and we can see the same behavior. We can, it shows us when they've uh, manipulated controls in the simulator, we can see that when, they're, when the operators are frustrated, they're hitting the same button over and over and over, just like that up button for, for the, the elevator. It's just amazing to see that same behavior happen in these highly trained teams. Um, so that's, that's, that's threat rigidity. We're, we're engaging in the same behavior, even though we know that it's probably not going to change the situation, but it's what we can do. Um, and another similar thing um, that, that people might engage in is um, to, similar to threat rigidity might be kind of tunnel vision, um, right? We're, we're under threat and, and we block everything out around us. We just focus on the threat. And so there may be useful information happening around us, but we're blocking it out. We're so focused on the threat. And so maybe someone else is telling us something, maybe maybe other information about a, a, the patient is happening. Maybe we're not seeing something about the patient that's happening. We're just focused on the threat that we, this problem that we can't solve. Why can't we solve it? We're doing what we should be doing. Why isn't this getting better? But we're ignoring useful information that's happening around us because we're so focused on the threat. I love, well, because you and I, Mary, just um, not long ago did some research together that you, you alluded to. And the thing about it is both this notion of threat rigidity and tunnel vision, tunnel bias, I think you called it, is that it's a reaction to the experience of scarcity. Mm -hmm. And so there's this idea that there's not enough time. And so we go into these counterproductive behaviors and that's, that's probably the, the worst part of the Kronos because, because as you said, like we have to coordinate with Kronos. There's no, there's, there's no problem with using various tools to coordinate, but when it's, emblematic of time. And if it's a clock, then there's, it's always ticking. So there's this sense of, of being controlled by it. And what happens then is people can't think clearly because scarcity does so many things to our bodies and minds, right? It's very fight, flight, freeze, which isn't ideal. You, you, it's not surprising that highly trained people make terrible choices when they go into this terrible fight, flight, freeze. Your, your, your brain's not, it's, it's real. It's not designed to be like, you know, like to, to show off your exquisite training because you can't get to that. And so 
what we found in that in our most in the study that we did uh, recently was that people found a way to use chronos to get outside of time so these um child abuse investigation treatment teams they're um it's part of the children's advocacy centers movement what they did is they instituted time which is a is totally counterintuitive when you are literally totally under-resourced in terms of time. So these were CPS workers, law enforcement, SANE. So there were medical, um, there were doctors and nurses who do SANE exams, um, you know, prosecutors, all the people who are like super don't have enough time in their job, super under-resourced from the beginning. There's just not enough staffing, not enough money, nothing. And told, and they used to, prior to the Children's Advocacy Center movement, um, which was just born in the 80s, they would all individually in their different agencies try to manage their side of the child abuse investigation and treatment. And so CPS would go and do their thing. Law enforcement would do their thing. They and you know the prosecutor would do their thing, but they weren't ever coordinating or talking to each other. And as a result, lots of things happened. One, because these agencies are under resourced, some cases just never got seen. People, no one ever went to check on certain. Yeah, I see your face. You know what happened? Some people did not go, and children died. And a lot of the centers are actually named after children who died because no one was on the watch because everyone is like racing and like, well, you know, CPS is thinking, oh, law enforcement, they'll get it. Well, you know, like they'll handle it till I can get it. And law enforcement's thinking, oh, CPS has already removed this person. Like everyone's hoping and um, that wasn't happening. And so the innovation of this movement was to say, okay, we're going to all meet as busy as you are. I know this isn't you don't get credit for this, but you're going to meet regularly to um, basically address the case. You're going to check in to see has, you know, has everyone who needs to be on this case, have they done their work? And then you're going to talk about the case because then that helps prosecution, right, decide because what was happening is they were even finding that um, children and their families often told CPS things different, not not conflicting, but different information than they told law enforcement because they thought, well, law enforcement only needs to know this, CPS only needs to know this. But it's amazing for prosecutors to hear all of the data, all of the information, because they can build a better case when they understand more of the complexity. And the thing is that we found is the lower performing teams were running from these meetings. They were like, I don't have time for these meetings. I'm, I, I gotta go, I gotta go save kids. I, gotta, I don't have time for these meetings. This is, I don't get credit for this. But they were actually underperforming by not having access to all of this information. But also what, what else happened? Not just information, relationships. And I feel like that's kind of key to what we're talking about across all of the teams. It's about being in relationship to, not just relationship to others, but it's relationship to the event, to the information. It's much, it's rather than you mentioned in the tunnel vision or the, the rigidity, 
where it's like separate, like siloing, like, okay, I'm off doing this thing. I don't remember which example it was. So, or maybe it's in both, but you're like off and like separating yourself. But I mean, from a Cairo standpoint, no, we need to all be in relationship to everything that's happening and not pulling ourselves apart when things are going berserk, when there's a problem, that's when we, we actually need to be able to use from, from all of our training that, and all of our experience, we need to be able to spot when something's off. We need to like, we need to get in it, not be apart from it. And that's also in relationships. And so what we found with the children's advocacy centers is that they, they developed relationships to each other so that they were able to better understand human relationships don't develop in a really systematic way, right? It's very nonlinear. It's very haphazard, messy, but what, how, the one thing we know about them is consistency matters with relationships, right? That those patterns that you're talking about, Lillian, of like looking over time, what is different? What's the same? We know that about human relationships is that the consistency you get to know people. And so those teams, people knew more. They talked about understanding each other's work better, which helped them do their job better, which I, it was just on and on. The, this, it was a positive cascade. Instead of this catastrophe cascade, it was this cascade of, of context. It's like, okay, I get how you do your job. I get how you operate. I get the timing of your of your work. And I, I get this case better because I've also set in on these briefings and heard more about this case. I've heard about other cases. I've seen how they worked. And in the end, um, I'll stop talking because I just get so excited when I think about those teams. But in the end, being in relationship to just broadly fill in the blank helped them to outperform teams that thought, I don't have time for this. Because they took the time to build those relationships and linkages, you know, it, like you like you always say, Donna, they 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 went slow in order to go fast, right? They they went totally. they went slow and built those relationships, not and that not only allowed them to perform and outperform the other teams and build those linkages to perform their tasks better and to perform to to build those relationships. Those relationships were task oriented and and also supported them personally yes. as yes. well. So they became more resilient individually they experience less stress in their teams and in their their uh, um, professions I mean it was a win-win-win all the way around and and the cool thing is we have seen and my my other co-author uh, Seth Kaplan at George Mason University hi Seth um, and I are we're we're finding similar patterns in a completely different type of team underground mine rescue teams, the, the teams that slow down and work together and build those shared mental models and transactive memory systems that we saw in, in the, the child abuse teams, completely different context, underground mine rescue teams, you know, they're working on tasks that don't stretch out over a year. They're working on tasks that stretch out over maybe 
15 or 20 minutes, but the same types of mechanisms are going on. They slow down, they build a shared mental model of the situation, they actually talk to each other. They're they're okay, are we coordinated? Or you know, are we do do I understand what you're doing? Do you understand what I'm doing? They shared mental model, transactive memory system, they slow down on the front end, they're able to outperform other teams on the back end, and they're actually overall faster at at resolving the crisis situation than other things. Yeah, and I feel like it's also a a nice protective mechanism against what you guys were talking about earlier with being the rigidity and when you're so focused and um, biased and tunneled vision Mm -hmm. is that having a platform where everyone can contribute their perspective, their thoughts, just makes the universal vision and understanding more comprehensive and more robust in addition to sort of building the trust yeah, but think about think about what happens in an organization that works against all this. The clock and how we're rewarded. Right? We're rewarded Absolutely. on an individual level. So we're set up to compete against each other. And we're set up to compete against a clock. Yeah. Absolutely. And remember, um, Mary, people in the children's advocacy centers um who didn't attend the meetings, it was because their supervisor wasn't going to reward them and was almost going to punish them. And a lot of cases, the supervisors who didn't get the model would say, you don't have time for that today. So yeah, it's, it wasn't rewarded, but it would have been right. Like if they could have seen their way to the other side, but you're right. We, we create a lot of impediments to this. Right. Right. Whenever I think about both of your work, I always think about the hashtag take back time and Mary and Donna, you guys both, both might have even said that to me at some point. But I think what you guys are both bringing up is this idea that even in a crisis situation, even in a code situation that Sadie and I may be running a code, it's really important to remember that we as the CBICU team, we own that time. We can dictate what we do with that time. And instead of feeling stressed by the clock, it is important to react and respond appropriately, but at the same time, we should do what we think needs to be done with that time. And if that means taking 10 seconds to regroup, to kind of think about what exactly is going on, then oftentimes, like you guys are saying, that is worth it because it brings the entire team onto a, into a shared mental model, but it's this whole concept that we own that time. We can give the patient our time and the benefits of having coordination within our team and the multiple minds thinking about the problem and how so many forces throughout um, our ICU day, like you said, do go against that. But at the end of the day, we just have to remember that who we serve in the end is the patient. And it's not based on RVU billing or making sure that we do notes and billing and compliance and things like that, which all as an organizational level are obviously important to some degree, but should never be more important than the patient. And I do think sometimes our goals are dictated by 
clock time that tells us how we should be using our time for the most financial gain um, in an organization. Absolutely. And I love the study that you and Mary, Lillian, you two did together with Seth and some other colleagues, right? With the trauma, with the, the trauma teams and who, I feel like the, the teams who were talking like small talk in the trauma bay, I think you call it, right? Those, that, that element of just back and forth, that was a kind of taking your time back, even in the beginning of, right, I know we're getting ready to go into this simulation and you could be sort of really tensed up and more anxious, like, you know, ready to go into, right, the, the, the heat of it, but owning that time through small talk and humor and laughter and the various things you all described I thought was a great example of how you it's, it's an orientation. It's like this overall orientation to your work that you have to keep reminding yourself of, you know, we own this time. This is ours. One of the things about that trauma team study that um, I think is really important is that we had found that in the pre-briefing, so essentially before trauma was coming people were given some time before the trauma patient, the simulated trauma patient actually arrived. And what Don is alluding to is the kind of talk that people had. And the more people who spoke up and used their voice, amplified voice, um, the more they were actually engaged in the entire simulation. And some of that is obviously, it just reflects comfort with each other, maybe from prior experiences. And obviously those teams could potentially do better because of familiarity and trust. But also, I think it's just important to remember that the more we allow each of our team members to have a voice in the care, um, the better that care will be because each person feels empowered to bring their best selves to that team that day. And it is important as team leaders to acknowledge each person's role on that team and to make them aware that their voice is in fact important. That study and in a, 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 a freakishly similar study with, uh, with flight crews, we found something um, uh, really similar. We found that if, if, if both the, the trauma teams and, and the flight crews started out um, their simulation and, and everyone, like you were saying, everyone used their voice, you know, everyone engaged in conversation, everyone talked, then it, it set a pattern of everyone talking, everyone participating. And that pattern at only after a few minutes carried on in the team. And so when the team later on in the simulation hit that crisis situation, the, the team members were more likely to, participate in solving that problem. But it, for those teams where the leader of the team that f- when the team first started in the first couple of minutes, the team leader, you know, launched into a monologue that first couple of, of minutes. Okay. You know, we're going to do this. And, you know, here's how this is going to go down and no one else used their voice. Well, several minutes later when the crisis situation occurred, 
everyone clammed up and looked at the leader. And that's exactly what you don't want to have happen when a VUCA event, you know, something bizarre happens, a non-routine event happens. You want everyone's ideas. You want everyone to participate. Maybe they've seen something. They have a piece of information that's critical to solving this problem. You want them to speak up, right? Hey, Texas listeners. We're going to take a quick pause here and conclude part one of our conversation on taking back time. But please join us for part two as our guests continue to share their thoughts and learn what Jeremy Bearamy is. <laughs> See you soon. And thanks again for listening. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information on how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and a lot more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution License.